Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, October the 17th, 2022. It is currently 1231 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, for the Bible Study Exercise podcast series, I have definitely approached this series, I think, in a very unique way. And I hope it's uh, I've approached it in a way that has proven to be very beneficial to at least some of you. Now, I know the, the series really requires you to, to jump in and get involved and participate more so than just sitting back passively listening. It's really and it's an it's really designed to get you off the couch and actually studying the Bible for yourself. It's very hard to get Christians to do that in 2022. Christians just want to listen, I guess. They don't really want to grab a Bible and a notebook and, and reference tools and actually dig in. But at least this series is there for people who want to actually study. It is there. Hopefully, we'll find more of those people, and hopefully, we will continue to build a group of people engaged in meaningful Bible study. And there are great benefits that I think arises when you have a group of people who are working and studying together, who are thinking through the text, working on it, doing all the, the different steps and the different assignments and looking at the curriculum. Because what happens is that person is studying and they see something and they mention it and then they mention it. And then ultimately each person begins to benefit as they are challenged to consider it maybe from a different perspective or to see something that maybe they overlooked. And everyone benefits from it. And you saw that happen in real time in the last episode of the Bible Study Exercise podcast series, because we've been working on the book of Amos now for a very, very long time. And we were looking at Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7, if you'll, if you'll just look at it really quick, you see that Amos chapter 7 begins with basically three visions given to Amos. A vision of grasshoppers or locust, a vision of fire, maybe drought, and a vision of a plumb line. And the way, and, and remember what we've been doing, we've been reviewing, we're, we're, we're using the comprehensive book Bible study method to work through the book of Amos. So we gave you all of those steps and we're kind of right now working kind of the chapter analysis, kind of going through it in a somewhat verse by verse manner. And we're utilizing the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Their ministry gave us permission to use it. So we're kind of using that, but we're using it in kind of a way where I'm playing his teaching and I'm offering my perspective at the same time. So it's giving you different perspective. You're supposed to be working through the book verse by verse yourself. So we have a lot of things going on, but live on the air, doing a live broadcast, working through Amos chapter seven, Dr. J. Vernon McGee kind of approached these visions like this, that, hey, this is what God decided to do to Israel. He brought a plague of locusts upon them, right? And then Amos cries out for them and says, you know, uh, God, so J. Vernon McGee taught it this way, that God brought these visions, these judgments upon Israel, and then Amos stepped up and, and prayed to God saying, please stop this, This, this you're going to bring us down, don't do this. And then God relented, God in a sense repented from that judgment and then stopped it. So in other words, the locust came in, then God got rid of the locust. He brought in the fire and the drought, and then he, he stopped and made it rain. 
That's the way J. J. Vernon McGee was teaching it. And I kind of went along with it because in the previous parts of Amos, we have God where he brought these chastisements. He brought judgments against Israel and Israel would not repent. They, they would just, they continued. They would not return to the Lord. So I kind of took chapter seven as God's like, oh, here's some more judgments and chastisements I brought against you. And Amos prayed for them, but well, Israel still suffered. Well, someone listening live who participates in all of the studies, they said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did these things actually happen or did God simply show Amos what God was about to do to Israel and then Amos interceded and God relented from it ever happening? And so we looked at the the language used and the tense uh, of the different words used in a number of translations. And I think we've came to a pretty good conclusion that God showed Amos what he was going to do. But then Amos, in a sense, interceded and the God relented. Then it's like, okay, I won't bring the locusts. I won't bring the fire. But guess what? I'm going to measure them. I'm going to bring a plumb line and I'm going to measure them. And they're, look, they're, they're still not level. They're still crooked. They still don't measure up. So then I'm, I am going to bring this judgment. And I don't know if I would have have seen that. I would hope that I would have caught it, but I'm not going to say that I would have because, again, I'm just as fallible as everyone else. So this person, literally, because we're studying together, I've tried to do this for the Bible study exercise. I've tried to, like, we're all in this together. We're working together. Boom. That, I thought, was just brilliant observation. I should have seen it. And... um That's why we do the Bible study exercise. We work together trying to find truth in the text and trying to be consistent with the text. So Amos chapter 7. Make sure, just just because we're getting ready to start Amos chapter 8, but just to make sure we understand and we review. Amos 7, what we have here is, in fact, I'll just read it. Amos chapter 7 verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, this is Amos, God had showed unto him some kind of vision, and behold, he, uh, he formed grasshoppers or locusts in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eatings, the grass of the land, then I, so in other words, he sees this vision of these locusts, this just coming in and taking, just destroying all the crops, destroying all of this, which would be devastating to their economy, to food, to everything. So he sees this, and then Amos cries out, uh, oh, oh, Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. And the Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. See, it shall not be. In other words, he stopped it from happening, from ever happening. Amos was given insight to what would happen, and then, then basically interceded, stood in the gap between Israel and God, and said, no, 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 Lord, please, this can't, happen. there'll be nothing left. There'll be, they won't be able to, to stand up again. They'll be too small. They'll be too insignificant. They'll be devastated. And God's like, okay. Then in verse four, Amos chapter seven, verse four, thus hath the Lord God showed unto me and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire and it devoured the great deep and did eat us apart. Then said, O Lord, then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented of this. This also shall not be. See, it will not be. He, both cases, God showed Amos 
Amos was like, no, 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 please. They, this will devastate them. And God's like, okay, I won't do that. And then <laughs> it's almost like, it's just crazy how this chapter is in. Then, then look at verse uh, Amos chapter seven, verse seven. Thus he showed me and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will not again pass by anymore. Okay, look, hey, I passed by on these other two judgments I was going to bring, but I'm not, look, I'm going to measure them with the plumb line. I'm going to see if they're level. I'm going to see if they're straight and they're going to, they're going to be found to be crooked. And guess what he's going to do? Verse nine, Amos chapter seven, verse nine, and the high places of Isaac shall be desolate right? I'm not going to pass by anymore. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I'll arise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. That's the way I think we should read the chapter. J. Vernon McGee taught it as these things happened and then God stopped them from, no, I think that they never occurred. They were just seen in a vision. And then Amos interceded. God relented of those things and not really even relented, I guess, relented of, of the fact that he was going to do it. But then ultimately he's like, okay, okay, no grasshoppers, no fire. Are you happy? Now I'm going to measure them. Now I'm going to destroy them. Or, you know, they're, they're going to be devastated by the Assyrians. That's, I think, the correct way to understand Amos chapter 7. It would be interesting to see how, to, to review no, numerous sermons to see how many approach it. But I think that's the correct way. And again, that was discovered and found live on the air, live in the middle of a live broadcast, because someone had been studying with us and working on the text. And I'm grateful that they pointed that out, because if they wouldn't have pointed that out, I possibly would have gone with what, with what I now believe is a wrong interpretation. And so a couple of lessons from that. One, that's why it's important to study together, right? We work together. And two, I don't care if you're the teacher. I don't care if you're the t- student. I don't care if you're the preacher. I don't care if you're the Sunday school teacher. I don't care who you are. We always have to be humble enough to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, and change our perspective. We're all fallible. The only thing infallible is the word of God. The re- all of our interpretations is fallible, flawed, and usually constantly need to be changed and fix. That's why you never rely on your previous study. You always, always, when you get ready to study the text, you forget everything you've known about the text and study it anew so you may possibly correct your previous fallible understanding. All right? So I wanted to make sure that was super clear. Now, our goal today is to go from chapter 8 to chapter 9 to finish our chapter analysis of the book of Amos. So in this episode, the goal is to make it all the way to the end of chapter 8. All right, 14 verses. Then then we'll do another episode later today and we'll finish chapter nine and then we'll be done with the chapter analysis. And then we may, we'll do maybe a couple of podcast episodes dealing with kind of the book synthesis, but I've already given you those steps. So you be working on that. Please use the curriculum and look at everything they have to say with the rest of the book of Amos. Go use the curriculum at least to go from chapter five to the end. And... Um, Maybe I'll pull up and do some episodes using the curriculum. We will see. 
All right? If you have any questions, you need any help, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Grab a Bible, grab a notebook. Let's go back and listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee as he works through chapter eight. Of course, we'll be interacting with it. And, uh, well, maybe we will agree. Maybe we will disagree. Maybe it will lead to who we. The good thing is I don't review these at first because it always makes it more fun to review it in real time because we never know what's going to happen. But we do hope this will happen, that we grow in our understanding of God's perfect word. Here we go. Now we come to chapter 8, and here we have another one of the visions, and this vision takes in the entire 8th chapter, and it's a vision of a basket of summer fruit. This is the fourth vision, and it's very important to get the meaning of this, and it will help us in the interpretation of passages that come later on, especially of things that our Lord said. I'm reading verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God shown unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, there's a great deal that can be said about a basket of summer fruit. I love fruit. To me, all fruits are delicious. I enjoy the fruits of California and of Florida, the citrus. I enjoy the fruits of Northern California and Oregon and Washington and across the country. And wherever I am, I love the fruit. There's nothing as attractive as a basket of summer fruit. But that basket of summer fruit has a message. First of all, it represents a harvest. It represents that the... Okay, now, if we were in seminary, and I was playing that audio clip. I would stop and go, okay, guys. He says the, the, the basket of summer fruit represents things. All right. That, I, we will view that as like a thesis. How, how do we prove that that's what it represents? Does it represent multiple things or does it only represent one thing? Now you would have, and I would give the class the opportunity to prove this. Like you've got to, pr- like it's anyone can turn on a microphone and say, "Ooh, a basket of summer fruit." It represents fifteen things, and people go, "Ooh, that's good preaching." Ooh, that. But just because we say something represents something, what we, what's the basis of that? Like, what's your argument that all of a sudden this, like the grasshopper? He didn't say the grasshoppers represented anything, or the locust. He didn't say the fire represented anything. But all of a sudden, the basket of summer fruit represents something. All right, what's the textual basis for saying it represents something? Is it in the chapter? Some of you may know. Some of you may not know. It's easy to turn on the microphone and say, this represents this. Oh, this number represents this. Preachers love doing that. But why? Like, based off what? (laughs) Just you decided, hey, Look, I didn't say the grasshoppers or the locusts represented anything. I didn't say the fire. I didn't say the plumb line represented anything. But all of a sudden, boom, the basket of summer fruit represents harvest. Okay. Let's, let's see if he proves any of this. Let's see where it goes. But that's the question I would ask. And I, I possibly would just say that's the class today. Everyone break into groups. Come back. Tell me which group can prove whether this represents that or not represents that. And what's the basis of it? Go, right? Well, I I won't do that now. If we had more time, I would literally stop the broadcast and just give you that as your assignment. But let's see what happens. 
tree is no longer producing. My apricot tree this past year had some lovely apricots upon it. But there's no use going out there and looking now. The limbs are bare, and there's no fruit on it at all. The harvest is past. It's over. And there'll not be any there until next year, or at least until later on this year. And the basket of summer fruit speaks of that which is delightful and delicious, but it also speaks of the end of the harvest. And it also speaks of the fact that it can spoil in a hurry. When I mean, he's just going through, he's going through a lot of things, what it supposedly represents. Now, the key is, how, do, how, how is God using the basket of summer fruit in this vision for Amos? Does it have multiple meanings or does it only have one? And does the text give us that meaning? We were in World War II. A missionary from South America wrote us from back east that she was coming to the West Coast. And since she was a personal friend, she would be staying with us She'd arrive on a certain day. Well, when she got to Chicago, that was the time you had difficulty getting reservations on the train. She found out she couldn't get on the train that she wanted to get on. The military had priority and all reservations were picked up and she was in the day coach and there was no room for her at all. So she sent us a telegram she wouldn't be coming on the day and it would probably be a week later before she'd be able to come. Well, we had prepared the guest room for her. Fact of the matter, I had gone out and picked some lovely apricots off of my tree, and I'd put a basket of the apricots in her room. But when we got the telegram, we just closed the room. We forgot all about the basket of apricots, and then... When the time came for her to come, we opened up the room. I want to tell you, the odor was not very pleasant. In fact, it took weeks to get the odor out of that room because rotten apricots are not very good, by the way. And a message is in a basket of summer fruit. What a dramatic and figurative illustration this is going to be. Now we're not through with it. Verse 2. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. Now, you see, God again and again in these visions would change his mind. He wouldn't destroy him. He said, Since Amos has prayed, and there must have been the godly remnant, that always stood for God. They prayed, and God would not bring the judgment. But now, the basket of summer fruit says, the jig is up. You come to the end of the line. Now the judgment will come. And harvest always speaks of that. Now, I have always felt that the passage that our Lord gave has been greatly misunderstood. He said, you remember, the harvest is great, the laborers are few. And a great many people interpret that to mean today that we are to go out and harvest. I don't understand the Word of God like that at all. May I say to you that today, 
harvest speaks of the end of a period, some period, and it speaks of an end of a dispensation. Now, the dispensation of law was coming to an end. That's interesting. The harvest is ready. It's not like, hey, go out and harvest it. It's No, the time is up. The, a, a certain dispensation is over. A certain period is over. Or judgment is about to come. Hmm, that's an interesting. The harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. The time is up. Does that work? Does harvest, what does harvest typically represent in scripture? This, this, okay. We may have something to work on here. We may, we may have to, we'll, we'll let him carry this idea out. But I, I don't want us to, I don't want to turn it into a special assignment, but it is something to kind of think about. Have we misunderstood the concept of harvest in scripture? All right. Let's see where he goes. Christ was going to the cross. Now he said, I need harvesters to go out today. And we're harvesting at the end of the age. But after he died on the cross, why, it's a different story. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Go ye into all the world and preach this gospel. Go into all the world and That's interesting. So the harvest is ready, the laborers are few. That was dealing with Christ, like the end of that dispensation of quote unquote the law. And now after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, now it's not har- now, now we're not to go in a sense harvest. We're now to go sow. We're now to go plant the seed. Hmm. This. Wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting this to go there, but now I, I, at least I will say, let's view what he's saying as a theory. We may have to, we may have to do some work on this. I don't know exactly how we would prove this. We would have to look up, I guess, we'd almost have to do kind of a topical thematic method and try to look at every entrance or every use of the term harvest. Sometimes it would just be referencing an actual harvest, but the harvest does represent, I mean, it does represent the end, right? does represent the end of something, right? I mean, the, uh, the whole planting, growing, that season is over. Now you're harvesting. It's the end. All right. L- let's see where, where he goes. Sow the seed. My business is just sowing seed. It's the Lord's business to do the converting. And we believe that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and make a son of God when a man of God will use it. And that's all we're doing is just sowing seed. We're not harvesting. And a harvest speaks of judgment, speaks of an end of an age. Our business today is sowing seed. And very candidly, I wish I could get us all back doing the thing God's called us to do today. And the church is to sow seed, which is the Word of God in the world today. Now, I've spent a little time with that because that's important to see, and I'll move rather hurriedly. He goes on to say here, and the songs of the temple shall be wailings in that day. In other words, a place to praise God and rejoice, become a place of wailing now. Saith the Lord God, there shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. In other words, 
They will be slain everywhere. The slain will be everywhere. And now verse 4, hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. I don't want to go into this again, but I merely remind you of how many times Amos has talked about the poor. And I have emphasized it, maybe overemphasized it. But I happen to be on that side today. I'm not on the young side, but I sure have been on the poor side. And I remember my dad wearing overalls. He was a workman. And I have seen him on Saturday when he drew his paycheck. We bought groceries on credit. He went and paid the grocery. He paid the doctor. He paid the rent. And when all that was taken care of, I remember one Saturday reached in his pocket because he always gave my sister and me a nickel, and he had only one nickel there, and he told me to go up to the store in the little town and to get a sack of candy, and I got gumdrops, and you could sure get a big sack in those days, and my sister and I divided those gumdrops. He died when I was 14, and I had to go to work. I had to get a permit for me to work, and I worked for two years, and finally, when I was 17, some folk, after I was converted and felt called to the ministry, they took an interest in me and helped me get through school. May I say to you, my friends, I'm for the poverty program, but not the one they're running today and have been for years. That puts money in the pockets of those that already have it. I'm for a poverty program that really is going to help the poor get on their feet and enable them to work. In that day, you see... They made the poor of the land to fail. That is, they were brought down to such a low poverty level they could never escape from it. And that is the condition, of course, of many in our land today. And so far, there's not been a program that has worked. And I'll tell you why it will never work until the right kind of people are running it. And that means Christian people. Now, that is the only way it's ever worked as far as this world is concerned. These people had turned from God. I, 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 I'm not, obviously, you know, I'm going to disagree with that idea that the only thing, any, the only way this program will work if the Christians are running it. Christians can't even run the church properly, and we're going to run a, a, a basically a welfare program correctly. I mean, why? Because Christians are sinners who fall short all the, it's always this weird idea that somehow when we become Christians, we, we're better at doing this and we're better at doing this. Our marriages fall apart, pornography, fornication, church splits, fighting, arguing, backbiting, gossip, slander. We always have this vision that, that we become a Christian and we become instantaneously better. No, we are declared to be perfect because of an imputed righteousness, but we still have a sinful nature that manifests itself all the time. All right. But, okay, I'm still trying to focus on the summer fruit there, but he, we'll, we'll circle back to it. I'm going to let him go this out, but we'll circle back to that. So don't, don't forget it. And the poor always suffer in a godless nation. That's been the story, and I don't think that can be successful. The poor was suffering under Israel, which was God's people who are under a covenant with God. That's see he he always wants to put uh, he does this over and over with Amos he takes the sins in Amos and places them on the shoulders of the lost Amos is placing the sins on the people of God the nation of Israel 
This would be focusing these sins on us as believers. I don't know why he continues to do that, but okay. ...contradicted. Now verse 5, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? Even when they went through the rituals that God had given them, and they went through them. If you had gone among those people in that day, and especially down in Jerusalem at the temple, why, well, you couldn't understand what the Lord was talking about. Why, well, he says, why, well, these people are going through the rituals. They're doing what they're commanded. Yes, but their heart was far from them. Even when they went to the temple to praise God, they were so greedy and covetousness had so possessed them like a disease that they would there sing the songs and at the same time think about business the next day and how they were going to cheat people. May I say to you, they not only carried their sin into the wheat, but they carried it even into the temple. What a picture that we have here. And again, he brings this up. Uh, this man knew what it was to be a poor man. And I want to say that maybe that's the reason I love this man Amos so much. He talks my language. He says the thing that I understand. He was poor. And some of us know what that means. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver. They even had to sell themselves into slavery. And that was permitted in that land, even under the Mosaic system. But I tell you, God protected his people even then. And the needy for a pair of shoes. That's how cheap they were. Yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. That means seconds. That means those things that were leftovers. I never have felt right about taking up old clothes to help the poor in the church. I've never felt like giving them the leftovers of anything. I had a man that was a dairyman down in Georgia when I had the little church there. And he told me, he says, well, I come right by the seminary. And that was during the summertime, and I was preaching in the little church out there. And he says, I generally have a quart of skim milk left over, and I'll leave it for you if you want it. And I told him even then when I could have used it, I said, no, thank you, sir. He would praise God that he was able to help the preacher by giving him a quart of skim milk. May I say to you how cheap and cheesy we can be with God in these matters. And that's exactly what these people were doing in that day. And my friend, God noted that. It was no accident that the Lord Jesus there that day he sat and watched how the people gave in the temple. Somebody says, is that his business? You bet that's his business. That's his business today, friends. That's a strong meat that we're looking at here. It's very harsh language. But God's speaking, friends, in this book here. And I think he's speaking loud and clear in these days in which we're living. Now I'm reading verse 7. The Lord hath sworn... By the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Two things that are here. The excellency of Jacob is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's sworn by the 
excellency of Jacob. What is that excellency? It's the Messiah that is coming. You could take no oath. Okay, there's another interesting thing. So we got the summer fruit that he says rep- that that I think is interesting in that harvest in Scripture. So we got the summer fruit that he said represent a number of things. He says harvest represents like the end of something. So like in in the New Testament, where it says the, you know the the fields are ready for harvest, but the laborers are few. He's like that. That's that was dealing with the end of a period. But now after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we're not to go harvesting. We're to go planting the seed. Okay, interesting. All right. I think because people still use that as like for, for evangelism, but evangelism is planting seed, not harvesting. So I think that's, I think that's, there, there's some interesting things going on there that we have to look at. I'm still interested with the summer fruit, but in uh, Amos chapter eight, verse seven, the Lord sworn by the excellency of Jacob. He says that's a messianic prophecy. How would, would you, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? How would you prove that that's a messianic prophecy? First thing we would have to do is this referenced in the New Testament and pointed to, to being about Jesus. If we don't have anything in the New Testament that even references this, then we would have to figure out exactly how you're coming to the conclusion. Then it says he's sworn by the excellency of Jacob that that's a, a messianic prophecy. What would you base that on? So I'll leave it there. Let's see if he says or if he tries to prove the point, but it is interesting that he has made this observation. Higher than that. And he says, surely I'll never forget any of their works. Well, we saw last time that he doesn't forget works at all. Even of the believer, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ And we are to be judged by the things that have been done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. What a picture that is given to us here in that connection. Now, will you note, as we move on down, verse 8, "...shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwelleth..." Just note, he didn't do anything to prove that the excellency of Jacob there... He didn't quote anything in the New Testament. He didn't quote anything. He just said that that's what it is. <laughs> I, I, I would like a little bit of explanation how you came to that conclusion, all right? In it. Now, many commentators think this is an earthquake, and it could possibly be. I wouldn't want to rule that out. But I think it's the fact that God is coming down hard upon them in judgment that makes the land tremble. Even today, you can't go through that land. And this is especially true of the northern kingdom. That is, it's all one today, but in that day, it was the kingdom of Israel. You can't go around places like Samaria. It's rugged hill country around Gilgal, around Bethel. All of these places are in a frightful state. It looks as if at one time it was a very fruitful area and that there was a great deal of vegetation there, including a great many trees. But the land has been pretty much denuded today, and it shows the evidence of judgment upon it. God came down heavy on that land, and we're going to see at the end of the next chapter that the promise for the future 
includes the land with the people. That people and that land go together. You can't separate them at all. And that's a very important thing to always note in prophecy. Now, we're going to see that. Whether it be judgment or whether it be blessing, the blessing will come to the land as well as the people. And today, again, I would say that's another reason that I cannot accept that the prophecies of the Scripture being fulfilled in their present return. To begin with, they have returned physically to the land, but they have not returned spiritually to the Lord, and there's not the blessing upon that land. It hasn't changed. Now, it is true that they have worked, and they have worked hard. They have recovered a great deal of it from swamps, and they have gotten irrigation into the desert in many places. And when they do, it does blossom as the rose. But those places are few and far between, even in that small land today. So that you could not say that these great prophecies are being fulfilled today. The last return to the land has not taken place yet. To begin with, there are more today in New York City of Israel than there is in the entire land of Israel, the nation of Israel. And that ought to tell you something. When most of this country moves to London or to Paris or to Rome or to North Africa, then I will come to the conclusion that America's pretty much divided when we lose the population like that. Now let me read on verse 8. Shall not the land tremble for this? And every one mowing that dwelleth in it, and it shall rise up holy like the river, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the river of Egypt. And as you know that down there during the season of the flooding, the whole land there is flooded. And it not only brings water to the land, but it also brings a great deal of fertilizer as it comes down from the very heart of Africa itself. Now, he goes on here in verse 9, "...and it shall come to pass in that day." Now, here is Amos speaking of that day. And we have already come to the conclusion, at least I hope we have, having looked at so many of the prophets, that that day is a technical expression that refers to the specific day of the Lord. And generally... It refers to the Great Tribulation because it comes first, because the day begins at night as far as Israel was concerned and as the Bible is concerned. It's the evening and morning of the first day. And I don't know whether you'd say it that way or not. I never would have. I would have said the morning and the evening of the first day. But the day of the Lord begins in darkness, and Amos has made that clear. And I think that here he moves on to speak of a judgment that is coming in the future. Now, if you will notice what he says here, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Now, that will be the future judgment, you see. Now, he says here, and I think he's returning back to what he's going to Now, this raises some serious questions, Right. If everything so far has basically been about the judgment of the Assyrians coming upon Israel, how do all of a sudden in verse 9, we jump to some future time? Like, 
Isn't everything here? I mean, look, I mean, it's very clear here that, okay, if if you go with the, with the visions in chapter seven, it's all about what's going to happen to Israel, what's going to happen to Israel, right? Chapter eight, we have another vision of the basket of summer fruit. And then he says, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass them by. And he says, what's going to happen to them? This is the judgment that's going to come upon them, upon the Assyrians. So everything is in that historical context. And all of a sudden he gets to verse nine. He's like, boom, boom, we're going to jump to the future. We're going to jump to the future. A future, the great tribulation. Are you going to say the judgment of the great tribulation is upon Israel? Like, how did I, I'm a little perplexed on how we jump there. Let's continue. To do it that particular time, which he did, by the way. He did not do the other, that is for sure. Now, verse 10, and I will turn your feasts into mourning. Now, God gave to Israel, the nation, seven feast days. I'm going to back that up just a little bit to make sure I got exactly what he was saying about verse nine, because I'm I'm not. He doesn't explain how he jumps, how he just obliterates the historical context there. All right, let's go through this. Now that will be the future judgment. You see, now he says here, and I think he's returning back to what he's going to do at that particular time, which he did, by the way. He did not do the other. That is for sure. Now, verse 10, and I will turn your feasts. So I guess he is assuming verse 9 is future, and then verse 10 goes back to the time of the Assyrians coming in. How, how can verse 9 jump just arbitrarily? So verses 1 through 8 is the historical judgment of Israel by the Assyrians. 9 jumps to the, jumps to the future. I just almost knocked my microphone completely over. I apologize there. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah, okay, so someone just said something, and I do apologize for knocking over the microphone, though. Okay, someone says, is this phrase the day of the Lord just referring to a day of reckoning? So in this case, it's talking about the same judgment the whole chapter is talking about. That That's the only way I would be able to interpret that. I can't just, like, I don't know how I could, all of a sudden in verse 9, just like, well, okay, we just jumped, you know, forget forget Israel, forget the Assyrians. We're going to jump to the future where God's going to bring tribulation. Okay, now verse nine, and then verse, uh, um, all of a sudden verse 10, yeah, verse 10, we return right back to Israel. I, that just, from a hermeneutical standpoint, that makes no sense. That would destroy context, that would destroy uh, textual context, that would destroy historical context, that would destroy everything. Now, I understand that there can be jumps, but the jump usually, I mean, it, it, the jump would have to make some sense. Oh, here we are, Israel, the Assyrians, boom, jump. Now, and then all of a sudden, re- revert back. Like, the, the verse the, the, the verse would make no sense with the jump. Would make no sense with the jump. And, man, that, yeah, that, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time with that. Having, so, we, we got a number of things that we're confused about here, right? So, if you're working on chapter 8, summer fruit. He says it represents all of these things. What do you think it, it is actually pointing to based off the language of the text? He says harvest, which is really interesting because he jumps to the New Testament where, you know, the fields are ready for harvest, but the laborers are few. And harvest there means 
the end of an age. It's the end. It's the end of something. And he thinks that's the end of the dispensation of law going, going over to Christ. And that now we're not in the harvest business. We're in the planting or sowing business. I think that that's, I think that's an interesting point. I don't know really what it has to do with Amos, but I'm fascinated by that. The excellency of Jacob, he says that that's a messianic prophecy. I don't know exactly how he doesn't prove that. So we have to try to test that. And then he says, verse nine is not dealing with the Assyrian judgment or the Assyrians coming against Israel in the historical context, but it's referring to the great tribulation. And then verse 10, we supposedly go back to the original historical context. All right, here we go. In the morning, now God gave to Israel, the nation, seven feast days, and they were to come before him the males, at three of those great feasts. And they were to always come rejoicing. It was a time of praise, thanksgiving, and glorifying God. Well, God says they've been celebrating the feast, but they haven't been praising Him. Now He's turning their feasts into mourning, the very opposite of what He intended them to be. And all your songs into lamentation. Now, isn't it interesting? Please note also to destroy his idea that verse 9 jumps. I don't know about your translation. The King James, verse 9 doesn't even end with a period. And verse 10 begins with and. Connecting verse 10 with verse 9 as referring to the same event. Uh, Obviously, what does this translation do? I'm going to look at this translation. This translation. Um... Let's see here. I'm looking. This translation, I think they do end it in a period. Oh, no, okay, no, verse 9. In this day, uh, okay, wait. No, they do end it with a period. All right, so this translation adds a period. Now, I know the, the punctuation wasn't in the original but I, but at least in the King James, you you would have to go that the thoughts or they can the translators of the King James connects verse nine and ten, they connect verse nine and ten. So I I don't know how you just rip verse nine literally out of its context completely and throw it all the way to the future tribulation period. I I don't know how you do that. And then all of a sudden verse ten goes back to what happened. I, I, I yeah. All right, let's continue today, and I'm no music critic, and I don't want to get into that field. But what is popular music today? Now, when I came along as a young fella, how in... What is it with Christians? Anytime, anytime a word song or music is mentioned, Christians just like, it's an opportunity to criticize secular music. It's an opportunity to criticize music. Like it, why? It's like Christians cannot read their Bible and see the word song or music without immediately like criticizing secular music. What is the deal with Christians and their hang up with it? I don't know, but all right, here we go. We're going to get a little rant about the music of his day. All right, I guess. I don't know. Here we go. In my day, it was the blues and then it was jazz and then it was the rock and roll. And today it's the hard rock. Now I ask you something as you listen to the music. Do you hear anything joyful about it? 
oh, it has a beat to it, and you can hop up and down like a yo-yo. And I have a notion that that type of joy is about the type of joy that a kid would get playing with a yo-yo. It doesn't require very much thinking, and it is something that is just worked up of the flesh. Oh, man. Oh, I cannot stand when I hear Christians talk about music. No, no, it doesn't require much thought. Who are you to say that? Like, oh, I mean, hmm. This has nothing to do with Amos. Literally nothing to do with Amos. Literally nothing to do with Amos other than you just, it just sounds like an old person like, I don't understand the music today. It's got some beat and I just don't under. Look, man, you, you if you're old and you don't get it, then, then that's your own personal opinion. Don't bring it into Christianity. Don't bring it into the Bible. Leave it alone. This has nothing to do with the music of today. Has nothing to do with rock and roll. Has nothing to do with a beat. Has nothing to do with jumping up and down. And it's that type of music that the world has always produced. It's mourning. It's tragic. I had the privilege of being in Vienna and going to the opera there. I really was coming up in the world. I'd never done that before. If you want to know the truth, it's the first opera I'd ever heard. And I hate to confess it, I enjoyed it. But you know what it was? It was a tragic thing. The boy didn't get the girl. My, that was tragic, you see. And the songs were lamentations and wailings. Now, that is what the world produces today. That has nothing to do with Amos chapter 8, verse 10. It's about a judgment coming upon them where God is going to turn their feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. Because judgment is coming. They are about to suffer. The lamentation and the mourning would make sense because of what they're about to endure. That is the music. And here, God says, I'll turn all your songs into lamentation." And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, and baldness upon every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Now, that is the judgment that was coming upon them presently. And it did in that day, and this was literal. Right, literal, that day, right. So verse 9, you ripped completely out of context. Verse 10, you go back to that time. Somehow it becomes an argument against rock and roll. I don't know how in the world that ends up. No, this is, they are mourning because they are going to suffer. Their songs are going to be filled with mourning because they are going to suffer. You tell me that in the Psalms, there's not Psalms of mourning. There's not Psalms of lamentation. Wait, so, so you're telling me God's people can't have songs of mourning and lamentation when the Psalms are songs of lamentation and suffering? Oh, 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 listen, listen to the music of the world. It's tragic. It can't be godly. Oh, but go read a Psalm that's mourning and uh, it can't be godly. I remember it was in the 1990s. I wish I could find the album. It was a Christian uh, metal band. And they took one of the Psalms. They just took one of the Psalms and made it into a song. Um, just obviously using a more, more, well, the modern music of the nineties. Well, okay. 
Well, we could get into Christian Christian music is always behind the secular world, but they were putting forth hard rock metal music using the words of a psalm. And it was very like depressing and very like dark. And they received backlash and criticisms like this song is depressing. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no Christ. This is ungodly. You're, you're going to lead people to commit suicide. And the band had to come out and say, it's literally a psalm. How about you people know your Bible? And like Christians felt really stupid that they were criticizing a psalm. Well, hey, the Psalms, the Bible have some very dark passages that are lamentations and pain. And it's okay to express your lamentation, your grief, your pain, your doubt, your confusion, even in song. Really fulfill. Now he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, please note, he still has not explained how verse 9 literally left the historical context. Verse 10 returns to the historical context. Now, is verse 11 going to re- stay in the historical context, or is he going to say that jumps to the future as well? Now, here is a most unusual famine. God had given them his word, and they had rejected it. They had despised it. They had turned aside. Now, he says, that day is coming when you're not going to hear it. In other words, the day is coming when no longer will they hear the Word of God. Now, I hear a great many people today mourn and bemoan the fact that so many of the great churches of this country, great downtown churches, have turned from the Word of God. Most of them have had to close shop. They're just barely operating, many of them operating in the red. No longer is that Word of God being given out in real Bible. Now, here we go. Now, what, what is it with Christians maintaining some level of, of hermeneutical consistency? So, all of a sudden, he's going to take verse... So, now verse... 10 becomes about the modern day music of his day. I don't know if that's the 70s or 80s when he recorded that, okay? Heavy metal music, all right? Hard rock music, okay? All right. Completely left Amos. And now all of a sudden in verse 11, the day is coming while we'll send a famine in the land, a famine of bread, not of thirst or water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. And immediately he leaves Amos again. He leaves Israel again. He leaves the Assyrians again. Boom, he jumps right back to the modern times. What is it? Why can't we allow the text to be about what the text is about? Right? Let, let's see if he places back in its historical context. Let's see if he, he's got to. He's got, he's got to do that. Teaching. Now, there's a lot of things called Bible teaching that actually is not that at all. At least in my judgment, it's not that. So... Those churches, many of them have closed and they've lost their influence. Those that have even stayed open, they've lost their influence, lost their drawing power. Now, what is happening is this. God says to any church or any nation, if I've given you the Word of God 
and you don't hear it, then I'll withdraw it. And that's what he's done. And you can deplore the fact all you want to about some of these churches today that have gone modern. They no longer hear the Word of God. Well, what did they do with it when they heard it? Many of them rejected it and turned their back upon it. And there came a famine of the Word of God. As a result, very little of the Word of God actually is getting out in this land today where there is a Gideon Bible in every room in every hotel in most. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Oh, well, I'm going to let him finish his thought. I'm going to finish his thought. Okay. All right. All right. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try not to knock over the microphone again. That was already embarrassing. That already bothered me. I've got to figure out what, what timestamp I knocked the microphone halfway across the room to see how bad it sounded. But okay. But take a deep breath. Let, let's see what he's going to say here. Hotel of the country. Nearly everyone has a Bible, but who's studying it? Who's believing it? Who's reading it today? That's the important thing. And I think that we're beginning to see the famine of the Word of God in this land. Now, oh, so I knew that's where he was going to go. So once again, he's already le- he's left Amos. He's left Israel. He's left the historical context. He jumped back to his modern time. There's a famine of the Word of God. Now, when I was a young Christian, I started saying things similar to this, that, oh, a famine of God's word is, is here. Look at 2022. God's word is everywhere. You've got thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of sermons available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the palm of your hand. You've got written sermons. You've got the entire church fathers. You've got doctrine, theology. You've got commentaries. You've got Christian, you've got the word of God everywhere. Now, yes, you may find that it's difficult to find a church that will study it and go in depth, but the word of God is literally available everywhere. You can listen to the Word of God. You can read the Word of God. You can have reading plans, devotional plans, Bible study guides. You've got so much available. Now, the issue is, it's not that there's a famine of it being available. It's that no one will use it. Well, I don't think that that's what the text is referring to. It's referring to a famine that was going to come upon them. They were not going to hear the Word of God. No prophets was going to be sent to them. And we know ultimately what happens. We call it sometimes the, like, what? 400 years of silence, of, of, of darkness, because Israel, there's no prophets sent back to Israel until we get to Matthew, right? Until we get to the New Testament, until the coming of Christ, when an angel is sent to say, you're going to hope, you're, you're going to conceive a child, right? It, it, that, is that not a famine of God's word? So this is a literal situation, literally going to happen, right? To Israel, ultimately, I mean, like, do we do we understand it from that, or, or do we just forget them and bre- make it somehow about us? A famine of God's word is coming, he said, or, or that probably in the 80s, 70s or 80s when he said that. We're in 2022. Yeah. Bibles literally everywhere. Sermons literally being preached 24-7 all over the internet. Well, you notice, they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. And today, we get any number of letters here from different areas of this country. They say, we've had no Bible teaching in our town or our community for years. Bible teaching is something brand new. 
You know, I used to believe that a lot, but I, 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 I'm now, I'm very, I'm very cynical. When I hear Christians saying, there's no good teaching, there's no good teaching. I've heard Christians walk into my church saying, I can't find any good teaching. Nobody will go in depth. Nobody will teach any doctrine. No one will teach any theology. And it's all entertainment. I'm like, well, thank you so much. Welcome here. I'm going to guarantee you I'll give you God's word. And then six months, a years later, man, I don't like you anymore. And then they leave. And guess what? All of a sudden, magically, they can go find another church. Christians love to whine. I can't find any good. You know, you don't find something you want. You can't find something you like. Now, I understand that there are areas where there isn't good teaching, but a lot of times people say that when in reality, then when they, when it's provided to them, they end up leaving that as well. So I'm very cynical. Okay. If, if there can be a little, if my church is in the little of little, literally the middle of nowhere, Texas, right? Literally in the middle of nowhere. Find Ovalo on a map. All right. Find it. All right. Look, look up Google Earth for Victory Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas. Okay. Look at that place. There's nothing there. Yeah, if, if we can have a little church in the middle where we go in depth, doctrine, theology, church history, all the things we do. Well, first of all, people aren't moving to be a part of it. People aren't coming to it. People aren't flocking to it. People aren't coming to it. They not, no, they, they either show up for a little while thinking they want it and then kind of like, man, this is all about teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. I want something different. And then they leave. So I, I, I'm most cynical when I hear that sometimes. I understand that there are areas. I understand that there are areas. I'm not denying that. So don't email me going, you don't know my area. You're right. I don't know your area. I just know that I've witnessed trying to provide a good church. And well, people drive right on by, won't stop, won't support it. Well, I mean, I mean, give me a, give me a break. People, we're not being, we don't get support. We don't, like, we're, no. So I, 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 and I trust me, nobody could say that we don't teach and go in depth because that's all we do. Whenever it comes to my church, I'm like, look, the only thing I have to offer you here is the in-depth teaching of God's word. I'm going to dig into the text. I'm going to take it apart. I'm going to do everything I can. People say they want it and then they leave it. I mean, that's just the reality. So so I, I, the whole, there's a famine. There, there is a famine maybe, maybe in your particular town, but trust me, there's plenty of, uh, the scriptures being preached all over all, uh, I mean, just look at how much content I produce. Just look at how much content I produce. Not even counting what I do at church, what I do right here in front of this microphone. I think I could give enough spirit. I think I give enough spiritual food to, to sustain one person probably for a couple of lifetimes. Even if you don't like me, you don't like the sound of my voice, you don't like my presentation. I mean, we cover so many very important issues. So, yeah, all right. But again, how about how about placing that in its actual historical context? To a great many people. Why? The famine's already set in, friends, in this land of ours. And we believe that although we appeal to a minority of a minority— that is, we have to appeal to Christians, but how many Christians today really want to study the Word of God? So we appeal to a minority of a minority. But today, we feel like the most important thing we can do, in fact, it's the only thing that we can do, is to give out the Word. Now, will you listen? 
verse 13, "...in that day..." Now, here we're back at that day, "...shall the fair virgins and young..." Oh, so I guess... Well, he said verse 10 went to back. So I guess he's like, 9 is the Great Tribulation, 10 is back to that day, 11 is, the I guess, the 1980s. At uh, 11 and 12 is like the 1980s, I guess when it was starting. And then 13 goes back to that. How do you, how do you just arbitrarily jump around saying the, this, this verse is about that period of time and that period of time? You gotta have a textual justification for the jumping in time. Man, faint for thirst. Now, Joel has already spoken of that, that there would be a day coming when it would be like that. Isaiah spoke of it, that even the young man would faint. And Amos makes it clear that it's for the word of God. Verse 14, They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth. Now, many took an oath by Samaria. And that was a common oriental practice. I understand today that in that land that a man takes an oath by even a trip to Mecca, or takes an oath by one of these mosques. It's a custom in that day. Then he says, The manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. These were great centers of idolatry at this particular time. Now we come to the last chapter, and it says, And there we go. We make it to the end of chapter 8, based off this study. I'm going to have to write this down to see where we stopped. Basically, 26 minutes and 28 seconds. That's what we have. We have 19 minutes left. All right, so. All right, we'll stop there for now. Um, I will just go back to the summer fruit idea. Just reading from one commentary, since we didn't have time to really completely take it apart, but there's a lot of issues I've given you to consider. All right, so the summer fruit, uh, this was fruit that was ripe and would not keep long. Just as the time is short for summer fruit, so the time was short for Israel. That's what it really represented, is that the summer fruit was like, hey, it see it, it looks good, right? Because Israel may have looked good. They were prosperous, wealthy, everything may have been looking good, but it was going to, it was all going to disintegrate quickly. Uh, in the original Hebrew, the prophet's point was far more emphatic because he used a play on words that is difficult to communicate in English. The overall connection between the vision of Israel's fate was in the wordplay based on the similar sounds between summer and end. The point of this vision, then, is the finality of judgment. So summer fruit there simply represents something that looks good, but it's not going to last. Judgment is now coming upon them. They, they look good, but that judgment, they're going to be, in a sense, eaten up. They're going to be destroyed. That's what it represents. So there's the idea of summer fruit. According to J. Vernon McGee, harvest, the word harvest, really carries the idea of the end of something, something of end, a time of judgment. So when in the New Testament, you read that the fields are ready for harvest, it means that the time is coming to an end, judgment is coming, right? And then when that period ended, now we don't go out to harvest. We shouldn't use that as an evangelism. We don't go out to harvest. We go out to plant. That's interesting concept, something that we could think about. In chapter 8, he says the excellency of Jacob that's mentioned in verse 7 is actually a messianic prophecy. We need to see how he came to that conclusion. 
Then he decided to say verse 9 has nothing to do with that period of time, but it actually deals with the Great Tribulation. I don't know how you come to that conclusion. Then he seems to say verse 10 returned back to the original historical context. No, or yeah, I don't know. Maybe 10, maybe 10, 10, he made 10, a a prophecy against music, which has nothing to do with. Verse 11, the famine, he, I guess, was saying start, was starting in the 70s and 80s, but he completely removed it from their context. And then verse 12 went along with whatever, I guess, starting with the 1980s, he removed it from the historical context. Then verse 13, he goes back to the original historical context. It's utterly so arbitrary with no justification and not even giving us a textual justification for jumping. I'm going to argue we have to understand all of this in its historical context. And that the excellency of Jacob, I want to know if you think you can prove that to be a messianic prophecy. And we're in an hour and eight minutes, so I have to stop. All right. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com with your thoughts on any of this, your conclusions, what you found, and those on the Discord channel. Can't wait to get your thoughts on chapter eight about some of those specific issues to see what conclusions we can come to. All right, I'll stop right there because I've already gone longer than I wanted to, and we will finish Amos chapter nine. Well, somewhere this afternoon or early evening, all right? Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you for your participating participating in the study of the book of Amos. Remember, it's time to transition into the book synthesis method, right? You need to start working on the book synthesis method on the book of Amos. If you don't know how to do the book synthesis method, uh, I will I will try to do a quick review of that method uh, when we get ready to do uh, study chapter nine later tonight. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you. Continue to study the book of Amos and, uh, well, consider some of the things we've talked about today. God bless.